My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Audrey Huntley and Krista Williams. Violence directed at Indigenous women has been integral to the settler domination of this continent since the time of contact. To this day, state violence and state-enabled interpersonal violence against Indigenous women is massive and devastating. But it is also, again as it has been since contact, the site of brilliant and inspiring resistance. In one of the most recent chapters of the Canadian state abetting this violence, the federal government decided to cut its funding to a non-governmental project that maintained a database of the many missing and murdered Indigenous women in this country and to turn the whole thing over to the RCMP. In response, Indigenous women and their allies are building a new database, one that exists beyond the reach of settler institutions, and that is envisioned as part of building a larger movement, not only against gendered colonial violence, but for decolonization. Audrey Huntley is a filmmaker and an activist with the No More Silence Network. Krista Williams is part of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. And they talk with me about the broader context of violence against Indigenous women, about the larger movement into which their own work fits, and about the database project in which both are partners. I spoke with them by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Audrey Huntley. I have been working around the issue of violence for close to 30 years. I am a mixed ancestry person. Uh, my mom was German. My dad is Scottish and Anishinaabe. I grew up in Calgary, but I moved to Europe as a young adult, and so I started doing this work over there. I didn't come back to Turtle Island until 98, when I ended up in Vancouver's downtown east side, and that's where I first got involved in the memorial marches for the missing and murdered women. In 2004, I went on a road trip called The Traces of Missing Women, where I went to First Nations communities from Toronto to Thunder Bay to northern BC, northern Alberta, back through the prairies, to just ask people to share their memories of missing and murdered women. And I was inundated. CBC then gave me uh, the go-ahead for a feature-length investigative documentary that took me about a year to complete, and that aired nationally. And that's called Go Home, Baby Girl. And I guess I should mention No More Silence. My background, along with working in Vancouver's downtown east side, has always very much also been around supporting struggles, defending the land and reclaiming land. So when I moved to Toronto, it was natural for me to be involved in the group in Toronto at that time that was supporting Six Nations land reclamation and the land reclamation happening in Tyendinaga. And it was actually out of that group that No More Silence was formed almost 10 years ago. And no More Silence works specifically around the missing and murdered women, but was formed with the intention of bringing that analysis of colonization into the work because it is often siloed off because a lot of the more mainstream traditional anti-violence work doesn't center decolonization and doesn't take that radical understanding that the violence is actually inherent to Canada and to how Canada was found and to Canada's ongoing existence. My name is Krista Williams and I am mixed Lenape. I live here in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, I grew up in Mississauga and my family comes from the Moravian of the Thames First Nation near London, Ontario. 
I am currently working with the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. I'm the Advocacy and Outreach Coordinator, and I've been at the organization for about four years now. We are a by-and-for Indigenous youth organization that works across issues of sexual and reproductive health rights and justice throughout the U.S. and Canada. And we know that, of course, some of this work also involves addressing some really harsh realities, like violence that enter our lives in different ways, and connecting that violence to the history and ongoing colonization that we face. Also involves making those interconnections between issues that often get siloed and get talked about in separate spaces. So one of the things that we work a lot on is this idea that violence on the land, so for example, industry, mining, clear-cutting, these sorts of activities, have an impact on the violence that we experience on our bodies. So things like sexual violence and that these are actually connected realities that they often happen at the same time, so why shouldn't we talk about them in connection to each other? Our work is very grassroots, um, local-based, really respecting that people are the experts of what's going on in their own lives and their own communities, and that, that means they have really good solutions, and making sure that that grassroots work also informs work that we do nationally and internationally. When I think about sexualized, gendered violence against Indigenous women, it's not only intimate violence, it's also everything that brings women into those situations where they end up murdered. So, like in the work that I've done, I've noticed a lot of similarities. The violence that Indigenous women have in two-spirit experience is very, very violent. Academics like Andrea Smith understand it very much as a tool of conquest, as really, really fundamental to the nation building of Canada. And it expresses itself in that brutality because I think the settler understands that he is rootless here and it's a way of asserting a hold and a domination over the space that they have taken. And at the beginning when Canada was being founded, it was really essential. Canada settlement process couldn't have taken place without that because women, girls, children were respected, were valued members of the community and had power. And they were the very ones who were resisting the theft of their land. So they had to be targeted. And they were targeted in all kinds of ways with, you know, the proliferation of racist stereotyping and just direct violence, just being killed. And that was essential to removing people from land and putting them into reserves. And then it played out in the creation of the Indian Act. You know, legislated sexual discrimination where women were taken out of the political process. And that Indian Act that is still an important piece of legislation discriminates against Indigenous women in many ways, right down to who gets to be defined as status Indian or not. And it continues to remove Indigenous women from their communities so that they are forced to flee and end up in cities and in unsafe circumstances like in Vancouver's downtown east side. I think also for us, we look at attitudes. How is our land getting treated, right? So this is Indian land everywhere we are. It's, it's Indigenous territory. We're on Indigenous territory, whether that's recognized by the people who settled on it or not. And if we look at how that land is treated, it's treated as exploitable, something to get something from. People want access to the resources to get and suck everything out of that for nothing more than profits and gain. And so if we think about that's how our land is treated, is it any wonder that that kind of attitude is also how our people are treated because we know that we're so connected to our territories and our land. So we use that connection for people to think about why there is so much violence and that it didn't just fall out of the sky, that it's something that's a very deliberate process. For people that maybe don't know some of the statistics around violence against Indigenous women, which it's a very contentious relationship in terms of 
having to prove our lived experiences and what people tell us is going on in the community and quote-unquote back it up with numbers. But nonetheless, that might be important for people listening to know. So Indigenous women are six times more likely to die as a result of violence. It's one in three Native women will experience sexual assault in their lifetime. We could go on and on about, you know, how many missing and murdered Native women estimates are anywhere from five to eight hundred. So there is certainly endemic proportions. And then even what do you count as violence? So we know in our work in sexual health that our rates of positive HIV test results are increasing at very alarming rates. How is that happening? And that people aren't looking at the other realities in our lives that are going on that, as Audrey said, create the environments where we experience violence. Because it's not just falling out of the sky. This is something that was deliberately set up by colonization to make it easier for a nation state to come in, take over, take resources, and dominate. So basically part of a genocidal strategy. And that has made it difficult for some people to support No More Silence's work. That was a pretty strong statement back in 2004 when we decided to found and basically said, if you want to be part of this and join us, you're welcome, but this is what we're calling it and this is what we think it is. Over the years, we've only been reinforced in that understanding of how we see the violence. And I forgot to mention impunity. You know, there's the numbers, there's the epidemic high rates of violence, but there's also the fact that the perpetrators tend to enjoy impunity if they're even found. The type of police action and judicial action that would occur is disproportionate to that if it were a white woman. I think it said something about Canada kind of selectively caring or deciding, you know, whose life matters. And often people who are low income, who are Aboriginal, you know, all of these categories of marginalization, their lives, you know, supposedly don't matter. The residential school legacy plays into it in terms of women and girls being safe in their own communities. And another reason why women are often forced out of their communities And even thinking when we think about violence, we're not just talking about intimate partner violence. We're talking about also violence from the state. So also talking about things like child welfare removal. So removing our children from communities, which is part of that legacy of residential schools. We're also looking at gender-based violence faced by two-spirit trans and gender non-conforming youth in the school system. You know, all of these kind of manifestations of colonialism that tell Indigenous people, you know, we're wrong. Or if we do things our way, how our nations are organized, how our governance and political structures go, that that's not the right way. And so a lot of our work focuses on reclaiming those teachings about gender and sexuality and healthy relationships and what that looks like, as well as restoring those roles and responsibilities that we have to each of our community members to ensure their safety, to ensure they feel loved and valued. And that's a lot of what this work is about, is honoring the lives of women who have passed and their families who are still carrying that grief and that loss while also acknowledging that we're not doing nothing about this. <laughs> like as long as there's been colonization, there's been resistance to it. There's lots of strategies that our communities have been doing to resist that that largely goes unnoticed or just not talked about. So why don't we move into talking about some of that resistance? Broadly, it was this national movement to commemorate and remember people who had gone missing or been murdered or died as a result of violence through the memorial marches, which started in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Yeah, like over 22 years ago, I think. Is it 22 or 23 years ago? Those memorial marches are really about taking space and asserting that these lives mattered. They're very locally driven. It's important that people do what they need to do according to their circumstances where they are. 
can speak a little bit about the downtown east side, where it's not so much a demonstration or a protest as it is actually about giving family and community a space to grieve and to hold ceremony. In Toronto, where we don't have that kind of a, a neighborhood where everything is concentrated, People are more spread out in Toronto and violence kind of happens all over. So we have chosen to go to police headquarters. We go because we want to assert that this is our sovereignty that we're asserting there and that we're on our traditional land and we don't have permission to come and call you out on your inaction in these cases. And it really isn't so much about addressing the police when we're there. We're just there. We're there. We hold a strawberry ceremony, which is a women's ceremony, and we ask all people to join us who care, but really the focus is on the family members, and that's typically who will speak. And afterwards, we have a feast. And I really like the last two years that it's been Indigenous men who provide the food for that feast. And that's actually a really beautiful part of February 14th. And then again, there's an open mic where people can share. And it's just such important work because whenever I speak to a family member, how devastating it is. It's devastating for anybody who loses a loved one. But to lose a loved one and then also be traumatized in the process of dealing with it, i.e. by the police or the courts or the coroner's office, like the common thread in all these interviews I've done over the years is just how horribly people are treated after something that's already horrible has happened to them, that they then have to deal with the racism of the society. One thing that hasn't changed at all, that if you're in that situation, you don't want to be talking to the police on your own. You want to have a representative. You want to have an advocate because otherwise you're probably going to get hurt, even more hurt than you already are. And we've found it very difficult over the years to connect these people doing the work. I think because the work is so hard and because the people who are involved in the work are dealing with so much trauma. When I think back, it's been a really slow process, but it has been one that is steadily building in terms of more marches happening in more cities. I think for us as a national organization and also working in the U.S. and Canada, certainly seeing that nationally our communities are getting more coordinated and we're talking with each other about what it means to talk about this, right? It's, it's painful. It's about grief. It's about loss. But how do we also connect that to work that is about strength building, that is about doing that violence prevention and really taking back that control and that self-determination of the work that needs to get done. So for example, even just asking people, what does community-based justice look like? So are we always going to be looking for somebody to get prosecuted by the courts or are there other ways that we can seek justice as Indigenous communities? And sometimes that is through ceremony, that is through remembering and memorializing in very community-specific ways. And so for us, it's also about what are people doing nationally and then how does that look different for each community on the ground and how can we ensure that we've got some of that control so it's not people trying to come in and save us or rescue us or take us away and do all of these things that have already caused violence, but actually for us as communities to self-determine, you know, what does this healing and justice look like for us? One of the things that was really important to No More Silence when we got started was putting forward that idea around impunity. But drawing the conclusion that a law and order approach can't be the answer for us. Smart women like Andrea Smith, you know, Angela Davis, they've critiqued how the women's movement fell into that trap of looking to state initiatives as the answer, and it hasn't worked. It's actually co-opted the strength of those movements. And I think people are becoming more aware of the need to build our own structures and mm -hmm. not rely on yeah. government or institutional funding, but to create ways that are independent. 
Huntley and Williams went on to talk in some detail about a few other specific organizations and projects working against colonial gendered violence, all of which are important, but none of which I have space for in this episode. Please use your favorite search engine to learn about Families of Sisters in Spirit, which is an organization of the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women who continue to push for justice and change, as well as Walking with Our Sisters. They then moved into talking about the database project in which they are both involved, the community-based alternative to the federally funded Sisters in Spirit database. The Sisters in Spirit database was run by another organization, the Native Women's Association of Canada, or NWAC, but it was ultimately defunded by the feds and turned over to the RCMP. So yeah, the work has broadened and is expressing itself in so many ways now that it is great to see. No More Science initiated a, a dialogue uh, a couple of years ago. We called it The Silence is Broken, The Violence Continues. And we see, unfortunately, although you know we've been talking about lots of good things, new forms of resistance, new expressions of support, and it really does seem like so much more awareness. And yet three women died very violent deaths here in Toronto in less than a year. So there doesn't seem to be any abatement of the amount of violence. I actually feel like it's increasing and it makes sense because we have a government that is pushing resource extraction and so the violence on the land is increasing. It makes sense that violence against women would go hand in hand with that. So now we need to find more ways, I think, to respond to that increase. And mm -hmm. I think one of, one of the ways is by strengthening the relationships that we've been building nationally and locally. So the database project has come out of that, doing it with that principle of being outside of the institutions. And I can't stress enough how important I think that is. And it is very, very slow and a gradual process, but it is the only process that's going to be sustainable. And the database, you know, the Sisters in Spirit one that has been taken over by the RCMP is such a good example of that. There was a lot of hope when that funding was granted in 2005. It was $10 million to NWAC. And they did some research. They had 580 names. But, you know, no one ever had access to that database. The families would get together once a year and receive some support, and that was it. And now it's gone. You know, the funding was cut, and it's just gone. So I think what we're doing now is going to take a long time to do because we're now in a situation where we actually have to start from the very beginning. We don't have that information. We have to regather it right from, you know, nothing. And it will take us a long time because none of us are being paid to do this work on a full-time basis. But we know that doing it this way will be more meaningful because it's actually there for the community to access, which NWAX never was. And I think that's really important about our project is that it's very much for the families and for the community. Our role in terms of the Native Sexual Health Network in supporting this community-run database is really to reclaim, as I was saying before, control of how those numbers get recorded. So what does Indigenous data recording that is owned and controlled by Indigenous community look like and what does that mean? And it's all very exciting because normally this has been done by the police or it's done by outside academic researchers. So we thought, wouldn't it be amazing for the families, you know, whose information and whose loved ones are going into this to be at the center of deciding what that process is and how it can be respectful and not re-traumatizing and also so that we get to decide, you know, what do those categories even mean, right? What does it mean for something to be missing or die as a result of violence? And how can we expand some of those definitions where before we were very restricted by maybe academic definitions or police definitions of, you know, if this is how somebody died, then this is what their death means. 
and that being really hurtful for families. And so changing how we report on that violence, which also means that's going to have an impact on how we take action on violence. Also making sure that we're accurately describing people's lived experiences and that a lot of misreporting was happening around two-spirit trans and gender non-conforming folks. So it's a really exciting journey that we're on and we're still working out what that's going to look like and having lots of conversations about how to do this in a good way. Yeah, and we're also really lucky to have Dr. Janet Smiley and Conrad Prince of the Well Living House helping us with that because Janet Smiley is a Métis researcher and she's someone who brings traditional Indigenous knowledge to her workplace setting, which is St. Michael's Hospital. And they've helped us actually develop the you know, the software platform for the database. And we've had long conversations with them about what criteria to include and, you know, what kind of definitions. And we actually came out of this with a broader understanding of who we want to include. We've decided that our database is for for women who've died violent and premature deaths. So we are now including suicides and other violent deaths that didn't necessarily come about by one perpetrator, but that have more to do with what I would say, you know, death by colonialism, you know, with the context of that woman's life. And so should also be viewed as being in that realm. We're learning how to do this too as we go along. We're learning to investigate these cases ourselves. And I realized that families have always been doing this and they've been doing a better job at this than the police have. Many of the stories that I heard 10 years ago or that I hear about today, there's actually a pretty good idea of what happened. It's just that the police aren't listening or aren't following through. But if you do the work, you can get answers. And so that's what we're trying to build now, you know, the capacity so that we can take that on. In doing this work, from who and how have you experienced support? And from who and how have you experienced resistance and hostility? For us the Native Sexual Health Network, it's really important to focus on like who's going to be supportive. So making sure that we spend our energy on communities and individuals who want to work with us. For us, it's about relationships, right? Who do we want to build relationships with? Who wants to build relationships with us and strengthen work that's also already happening, right? Because it's not like we're pulling this out of thin air. This is stuff that's already happening on the ground. And then how can we offer our support to each other in strengthening what's already going on? Certainly some of the resistance, I mean, it it comes from all angles. There's healthy resistance in terms of people still figuring stuff out. We largely ignore other forms of of resistance or or lack of support. If it's not working, if it's not something we want to spend our energy focusing on. I'd love to mention in terms of support, specifically Mm -hmm. around the database, a Women and Gender Studies Institute at U of T. It's a young or new partnership that began with them last spring where we got funds to bring Andrea Smith and have a more strategy-oriented community meeting that the database actually came out of. Unions have supported us as well for our February 14th every year. So unions and new university are sort of the main ally-type partners where we get support. And where where I would say I've encountered the most resistance is actually from Native organizations that are state-funded because they are very apprehensive of our analysis. And because we do talk about decolonization and It's not that we have a problem with agencies in the city getting funded and doing good work. We're actually happy to support that work. But it's taken us a really long time to break down 
I think the worries and the fears that have been there. For many years, that part of the community did not come out on February 14th. That's only really changed in the last three or four years. And I'm not sure why, but I'm glad. I mean, I think part of it is we talk a lot at the network about, you know, meeting people where they're at. And so if a community or an individual or an organization isn't ready to talk about the violence that is very real, that is happening in people's lives every day, then we're going to continue on with the work anyways, right? Because we know it needs to get done. And that if people aren't ready to get uncomfortable and get real about where we're at in terms of the violence that we're facing, then, you know, they need to go to go do that work. And in the meantime, we're going to continue doing what we know needs to be done and what other parts of the community have also said, this needs to get done like yesterday. What are the key things that you're hoping the organizing will be able to accomplish in the next six months or year? There's several things on the horizon. The database I see... We're in the midst of developing a two, three, and five-year plan of where we want to go with that. But in the short term, we hope by February 14th to be able to have an information drive, specifically reaching out to family members. We hope to have community partners by them who can help with that work because it's often not just a matter of giving someone a form and asking them to fill it out. You know, you have to spend time and you sit with people. And depending on how recent the loss was, it's going to be sometimes really hard for people to talk. And also when you're doing the work, it is never just about the actual violent loss. It's always about the whole lifetime. And it's also always about, you know, generations of lifetimes. That's what I've been finding in doing these interviews is that it really takes you down that path of intergenerational trauma, loss of land, loss of family, family breakdown. So that's like a big, big part of the work is trying to connect with the right community partners to help us do that. Currently, we have some PhD students who are helping us develop research guidelines. And we hope by the spring, when we're going to have another national meeting, we hope by then to have completed a pilot model for Ontario that then can be replicated in other regions. Longer term, we want to get the database up to the existing numbers that we know about. That's going to be a lot of work because we don't just want to enter these names. We actually want to verify and investigate these circumstances so that there's a high integrity that the information has. In the process of doing that, you see us continuing to build these relationships and capacity around just more structures that are outside of colonial dependency and that are focused on asserting sovereignty, whether it's in cities or whether it's supporting cabin building projects, things that will make us safer. In the long run, we do need to affect the actual violence. We don't just want to be documenting and investigating it. We actually want to be getting to a point where we're impacting and where perpetrators no longer feel so comfortable, where it becomes unacceptable because we're not at that place yet. We're still in a place where most Canadians tolerate that this is going on, and we need to get to a place where it's completely unacceptable. So I guess for No More Silence, that also means continuing to work with allies and getting those allies to do the work that they need to do with their people. You have been listening to my interview with Audrey Huntley of the No More Silence Network, which can be found at nomoresilence-nomoresilence.blogspot.ca, and Krista Williams of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, which is at nativeyouthsexualhealth.com. For these links and more, search for this episode's page on TalkingRadical.ca or Rabble.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Prince, 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 Prince,